Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119? If you don't have a Bible with you, there are plenty on the bookshelves. Help yourselves. Psalm 119, starting at verse 33. If you've got a church Bible, there's page numbers on the sheets. And also it shows you what I'm going to preach on in, well, straight after we've read this. Most of you know we've been going through Psalm 1 and then Psalm 2 in the last couple of weeks. My plan never was just to keep going through the book of Psalms, but to take certain Psalms. So I've jumped right away from Psalm 2 to Psalm 119. Here's a story I hope will encourage you to take notice of it. Hundreds of years ago, there was a man called Philip Henry. Philip Henry said to his children, Get to know Psalm 119 and it will make you love the Bible. Get into Psalm 119 and it will make you value God's words. Well, it seems that Philip Henry's children took notice of him and one of them was called Matthew. And some of you have heard of Matthew Henry. He wrote six great big volumes explaining the whole Bible. And they were for probably over 200 years maybe longer, the most popular and the most helpful, (coughs) sorry, I need a bit of water. They were the most popular and to many people the most helpful set of volumes for explaining the Bible in the English language. And at least part of that came from his father having said to him, get into Psalm 119. And that will teach you to love God's word. So I'm going to try to read to you verse 33 to 40. 33 to 40. (coughs) Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. Some Christians are one weapon warriors. Some Christians are one-weapon warriors. What's happened is they've discovered a weapon God God gives us to fight sin and to keep going in the Christian life. Uh, Let's say, I'm picking examples here almost at random. Let's say prayer to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or maybe having a prayer partner, someone you pray with. Or maybe the importance of preaching. They say, oh, preaching is so important. There's the weapon. Or maybe it's seeing the idolatry behind your sin. Now there's the key to fight all sin. And they're so pleased with this discovery, they make it the key to the whole Christian life. They are one weapon warriors. 
Now, I am glad for their enthusiasm. I think, I'm not completely sure, but I think it's better to have someone who's got that enthusiasm but a bit unbalanced than to have someone who's more correct but apathetic. I might retract that if we got someone really enthusiastic and really unbalanced, but I think that's better than apathetic. But those one-weapon warriors are missing out, and they've got weakness, because God hasn't given us one weapon. He's given us a whole armory of weapons for the Christian battle and for keeping going in the Christian life. And this evening, I want to use Psalm 119 to take you through some of the things God has given us to help us fight sin and keep going in the week ahead. Not all of them. God has given us a bigger armoury than we can get through in one evening. Can't give you a tour of all the armoury tonight. But I can point out some, in fact, five things that we need from Psalm 119. Now, as I'm doing this, I'm aiming to give you a little flavour of Psalm 119 to encourage you to get into it. Psalm 119 works like this. Many parts of the Bible are like a golden chain. Links that go together in a logical progression. And you've got to see how it all goes together. Psalm 119 is more like a treasure chest of separate gold rings. And they aren't necessarily together in logical order. You can take one out on its own and examine it and enjoy it. By the way, the order they are in is, why have you got all these sections with these funny squiggles at the top? They are Hebrew letters. And in each section, every verse began with that Hebrew letter to help the Jewish people to memorise the whole psalm. We will be in section, it's called Hay. Looks like he. It's verses 33 to 40. But we're not going to go through it fully, nor in order. What I'm doing is taking some of those rings out of the treasure chest, having a little look at them, to give you a flavour of Psalm 119 and to give you some of God's equipment for fighting sin. That's the two things I'm aiming to do. Give you a flavour of Psalm 119, give you some equipment for fighting sin from this psalm. But as we do it, we've got to remember we are not when Psalm 119 was written. That was an awfully long time ago. Now, life hasn't changed. Humans haven't changed. Sin hasn't really changed. God hasn't changed. But something has changed. Jesus has come. And as we go along, we'll have to ask, well, how does that affect getting from Psalm 119 to us? So there's the plan. Let's get into it now. What do you need for the week ahead for the fight against sin? First thing, God's word. Now, if you've got the notice sheet, you might notice for all the others I've put a verse down. For this one, I haven't because I don't need to. Because it is the theme of the whole psalm is God's word. The big theme of Psalm 119 is the word of God. It's easy to show this way. Have a look how many verses this psalm has. Just have a look and see. Easy. 176. Have a guess. How many of them mention God's word? How many out of 176? I I can hear people saying 176 and I've caught you out. Sorry. It's not quite. It's 174. There are two 
I believe, that don't mention God's word. Two isn't many, is it? 174 out of 176 mention God's word. It is the big theme. Whoever wrote this psalm, if you read through it, you find he, or maybe she, I don't know, wants to know God, wants to keep his way pure, wants to know the direction he should go, wants to be made to overflow with praise. And for all these, he tells us the way is not having a dream or a vision or a mystical experience or a new prophecy or a clever bit of theological deduction. He says the way to all of these is God's word. God's word written in this book. God's message to us. That's the theme of Psalm 119. Its main message is you need God's word. Now, that was a long time ago, and Jesus has come. Has that changed that? No, Jesus has come, and we're still told after he's come, do you know these words? 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Timothy, from infancy you've known the Holy Scripture. The Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture, and it's very significant, the word means writings. It's not having dreams and visions and God's given me a word of wisdom. It's it's words written. The word means writings. Words written here have been given. God has in them given all we need for everything we'll face this week. To equip us, to inform us for everything we'll face this week. Jesus coming hasn't changed that, but it has changed something. Has changed something. Let's have a look at the words for scripture in verses 33 to 40. And it will help us to notice the words. Someone tell us, what's the word for scripture in verse 33? Decrees. And in verse 34, law. And in verse 35, commands. And in verse 36, statutes. Verse 37, word. Verse 38, Promise, verse 39. Laws, we've had that one before, haven't we? It's the only repeat in this section. And verse 40, precepts. Now, when you read the word law, it is not as narrow as we think. We think of it as being just rules. Maybe you think Ten Commandments. It's not as narrow as that. It's basically meaning instruction from God. But it is significant. You've got this emphasis on laws, statutes, precepts, decrees, In other words, God telling us to do something. They are all law-connected words. When Jesus came, he didn't change our reliance on the Bible, but he did change the emphasis. He changed the emphasis this way. For example, he said to religious leaders, you search the scriptures, good, so you ought to, because they speak of me. He said to his disciples, as they were walking down the road, and they were so upset because they thought he was dead. You fools, he said. You should have known that from Moses to the prophets, the scriptures are all about me. 
So you didn't change our need of God's word and that God's word is sufficient. And yes, the Bible still tells us to do. It still has commands. But now the emphasis is on value the scriptures for getting to know Jesus himself. Now, so far, I probably haven't told you much or anything new. My main aim is simply to encourage you, keep reading the Bible. Do you need encouragement to keep reading it? I expect so. I do. It's hard often, isn't it? It's hard sometimes because it's hard to understand. It's hard sometimes because it's familiar. And we are weak humans who get bored with the familiar. Shock, horror, that's been admitted in us church on Sunday. But we do, don't we? We get bored with the familiar. And we need encouragement to keep going. Keep reading, keep memorising, keep meditating, chew it over like a cow chewing the cud. You need to. Here's a demonstration you need to. How did Jesus fight temptation? You know when the devil came to him with temptation and the devil said, do this, and Jesus said, no, because scripture says so. Do that, no I won't, because scripture says don't. He knew the Bible and he knew how to apply it. And the son of God himself would not have managed to see off the devil if he hadn't worked at knowing the Bible. Have you thought of that? So how can you and I expect to cope? So I want to encourage you, keep reading it. First thing we need is God's word. Here's the second thing we need, to be taught by God. Taught by God. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Now, this might look like the same as what I've just been saying. You might be saying, what are you doing? You're saying the same thing because we're taught by God through the Bible. This is the same point. No, it's not quite the same point. I try to show it this way. Here's a made-up example. Sarah wants to understand how electricity works. So you get her a physics textbook and you give it to her. But she still doesn't know how electricity works. Can you guess why? Don't, Don't say, just think. Can you guess why she still doesn't know? No, it's not that the book's no good. It does have the information she needs and you turn to the right chapter for her. So, can you guess why she still doesn't know how electricity works? No, it's not that she's in a dark room, the lights are on, but she still doesn't know. Are you starting to get a clue why she still can't figure out and understand how electricity works? She's got the book, she's got the page, she's got the lights on, but Sarah is blind. And so however good that book is and however bright the lights are, she's not going to get anything from it. The Bible has all that we need. And later in Psalm 119, it says the Bible is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Nothing deficient about the Bible, but a light is no good to blind people. And left to ourselves, we're blind. And so the psalmist doesn't just read God's word, he prays. Notice verse 33 is a prayer. Teach me, O Lord. And so is verse 34. Give me understanding. Or have a look at verse 18, which fits exactly with my illustration. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. The wonderful things are already there, 
But I need you to open my eyes to see those wonderful things. We need God's word, but we need more. That might sound to you a bit heretical, but it's not. There's nothing deficient in God's word, but we need him to teach us to see those things. There was once a chancellor of Oxford University. Now, presumably, you have to be very clever to be a chancellor of Oxford University. This man was certainly very clever. He was the greatest theologian that England has ever produced. And his name was John Owen. And he said this. I'm going to put it in my own language because his language was much better than mine, but I can't remember it and it was quite complicated. But he basically said this. Don't you dare ever read the Bible presuming you can draw out the goodness you need through your own cleverness. Don't you dare ever just start reading the Bible thinking you can do it by your own powers of deduction. Don't you dare ever read the Bible without asking God to open your eyes to see what you need to see from it. And don't you dare make that just a little token prayer that's become a habit because you ought to. Make sure it's a sense of you need. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord. Verse 34, give me understanding. Has Jesus coming changed this? No, not at all. Not at all. Like so many things in the Old Testament, Jesus coming hasn't changed it. It has clarified it and given us greater confidence. I mean this. Jesus coming has told us it is the Holy Spirit who caused this book to be written. And it's the Holy Spirit who can open your eyes as you read it. So you get what you need from it. Jesus gave us greater clarity, but he also gave us confidence. He said, you can pray verse 33 with confidence because does a father, if his son asked for an egg, give him a stone? No, fathers like giving good gifts. And so Jesus said, if you pray to your father to give you the Holy Spirit, you could be confident he will. So do you? Before you read the Bible. Christian brothers and sisters, do you pray God would give you the Holy Spirit to open your eyes when you sit down to read the Bible? Very simple lesson. It's the second thing we need here in Psalm 119. Here's the third thing. Heart turned. We're jumping to verse 36. 36. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. We need our hearts turned. In the 1700s, there was a preacher called Robert Sandiman. He was an unusual preacher. He told them at his church that they must wash each other's feet and they must go around giving each other a holy kiss. You fancy that? Don't say. But he, he also taught that Christianity is just about understanding truths and then doing them. What's the problem there? It's just about understanding truths and saying, yes, I, I believe that truth is true, and then doing it. Is there something missing there? 
Yes, it made it all about the intellect, nothing about feeling or experience. He, was, he, he really pushed aside all Christian feeling and experience. By the way, it became known as Sandemanianism. If you like a theological term, there it is, Sandemanianism. Christianity that pushes aside feeling and experience. You don't need that. You just need to understand, believe and go and do it. This is a danger in many evangelical churches today, particularly our sort of churches. A dry, dead, intellect-only Christianity. And it's a danger. Psalm 119 helps us against that danger, but, but we need a particular help. Because here's another danger. Imagine you're driving down a country lane. As you drive down the lane, you see there's a ditch on the right-hand side. And there's a car in it. They've driven into the ditch. The ditch is called Sandemanianism, intellect-only Christianity. You don't want to end up in that ditch. What do you do? Steer left. What happens? End up in the ditch on the left. And the ditch on the left is chasing experiences. No time for careful teaching. Skeptical about theological thinking. That's all just a bit too clever, dry. We don't need that. No, just give us experience. And you get in that ditch. And, and in that ditch, you just feel pleased with yourself. You're not in the other ditch. Biblical Christianity avoids both ditches this way. Let's look at Psalm 119. Verse 33, teach me. Verse 34, give me understanding. Don't be in the ditch that despises careful teaching and thinking. But what is that teaching to result in? It's to result in verse 36, turn my heart. Now, I know in the Bible, heart doesn't just mean emotions. I know in the Bible, heart and head are not opposites. But here, heart includes desires. It includes verse 35, delight. Now, can you see the pattern we've got here in this section? God, teach me, give me understanding. So then inside me, I find that strong yes to your law and that strong no to sin. That's, that's really what emotions, or to use the old-fashioned word affections, are. They're a strong reaction to what God has taught us. A strong yes to what he says, a strong no to what he says not to do. And then, verse 33, second half, I take action. Keep those laws. That's what we need. Let me go through that again. Check that we've got it. We need God's word addresses our mind. It to be felt in our hearts. We desire what God says. And then for it to be put into action. We need all of those links. We mustn't have any of them missing. If you miss the understanding and go straight for the emotions, that's a danger. That, that does happen. Let's just go straight for the emotions. Dim the lights, pump up the music, get to people's feelings. It's, then there's all sorts of danger of manipulation and just shallow emotions that will soon evaporate. If, well, if we make it all about the understanding, just the understanding, then, then we'll soon have a dead, joyless Christianity. If we don't put it into action... Well, it becomes a self-centred all about how I feel or how pleased I am with my understanding. We need all three. Understanding addressed to turn the heart, 
and to be put into action. Has Jesus coming changed this? No, not really. You can find this pattern across the New Testament. You might like to have a think sometime about how in Paul's letters this pattern gets put into action. I'll give you an example from Peter's first letter. Sometime you could have a look in chapter 1 and you'd find verse 3 onwards is teaching about Jesus and what he's done. So we understand what he's done. And in verse 8 it says, although you, although you haven't seen him, you love him. Although you don't now see him, you rejoice with joy indescribable and full of glory. Do you see, your heart has been got to. Not on the basis of some sort of mystical experience. You haven't seen him, but you've been taught and you've got to know him. And then verse 13 says, therefore prepare your mind for action. Now go and put it into practice. See all three. And have you noticed again, in the New Testament, we have the same pattern as the old, but it's made more clear, it's all focused on Jesus. We need God's word. We need God himself to teach us from it. We need our hearts turned. It it isn't just all in the head. And then fourthly, we need eye gate guarded. Verse 37. Eye gate, I'm calling this, being guarded. Verse 37, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Now, remember at the start, I said, I'm not telling you all the weapons for fighting sin. They're more than we can go through in one evening. So there are other gates you need guarded, but here's the one in this psalm, well, in this section. Eye gate guarded. Where did I get that phrase from? One of the best books other than the Bible you could read is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Great book. It's in the church library in that corner of the lounge back there in a good translation in modern English. Get it and read it. But John Bunyan also wrote The Holy War. It is nothing to do with Islamic Jihad. It is to do with the battle with sin. And in it, the Christian is pictured as a city, a city called Mansoul, under attack by the devil. The enemy is attacking and trying to take the city. And there are various gates that are attacked for the enemy to try to get into the city. And one of them is called Eye Gate. And the enemy tries to get in through Mansoul's Eye Gate. Bunyan is picturing temptation often comes to us through our eyes, through what we see. And so we need to pray, verse 37, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Now, of course, we need this prayer more than ever. If you think about what sort of things could the psalmist see back then, well, there were all sorts of things, of course, but far fewer than for us, because we live in a much more visual age than him. We have this sort of thing which the psalmist never had. You go on a website because you're looking something up. And you read through an article online and you get to the bottom. And what's at the bottom of so many of them? Clickbait, isn't it? Clickbait. All sorts of pictures and headlines and things that are just designed to try to get you to click on them. They even have traced your search history to know what clickbait you're more likely to go for. Click on them and what happens? Oh, before you've known it, half an hour of your life has gone that you'll never get back again on worthless things, or maybe even harmful things. 
that have provoked your lust, that have wounded your conscience, that have got you doing the opposite of the second half of verse 36. They've turned you towards selfish gain because marketing is all designed to provoke your coveting. We really need verse 37, don't we, this prayer. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Or here's another example that the psalmist never had, but we do in this visual age. You've come home after a hard day's work and you're tired and you just want to vegetate. So you flick through the TV channels to see what's on. Or you flick through Netflix or you surf through YouTube to see what you could just vegetate in front of. And you're walking through a minefield. It really is a minefield. So many worthless things. So many dangerous things there. We need this prayer. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. And practical action. Maybe put this verse on your top of your screen. And before you watch something, say, can I watch this and pray verse 37? That'd be a good practical action. It's just the same in the New Testament. Jesus taught just the same thing. He said, in this minefield of a life full of temptation, you need prayer and practical action. So he said, pray, lead us not into temptation. Father, protect me. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. But he also said, take practical action. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, It's not the practical action is go home and get the kitchen knife and do something really disgusting. Because as you full well know, gouge out this eye and you can sin just as easily through this eye. Gouge out that eye as well and you can sin just as easily in your brain. Gouge that out and, well, there we are. That's the end of you. What he means is take practical, serious, even costly, even others, maybe even others in this church would think that's extreme, action to guard yourself from temptation. We need God's word. We need to be taught by God. We need our hearts turned. We need our eyes guarded. And then lastly, we need resolve. Resolve. Verse 33 Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees, then I will keep them to the end. We need resolve. But we've got to be careful with it. Be very careful how much you think resolve can do. After the 2012 Olympics, can you remember 10 years ago? If not, after the 2022 Lionesses win, you can remember that one, there was quite a lot on the media, in the news, a lot of talk about these successes show. There were athletes and footballers who said, our success shows whoever you are, you can fulfil your dreams if you're just determined enough. Now, what do you think of that? After the 2012 Olympics, when they were saying that, I measured out along that wall, actually, how far they were doing in long jump. And I can guarantee, however determined I was, I could not jump it. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? I don't know why people waste their breath saying such things. It's just a matter of resolve and determination and you can do it. No. 
Nobody became Olympic champion by sheer determination. They needed ability and a lot of hard work, which came from determination. Ability and determination. You cannot fight sin by sheer determination. You can't overcome temptation by strength of resolve. You need all the things that we've seen already. God's word taught by God, heart turned by him, protected by him. And then we must take responsibility. Verse 33, then I will keep them to the end. That is a statement of resolve. But it relies on all the other things. And we need we need to take both seriously. We need God, but we must resolve. I will do this. We have a responsibility in this. Now, I hope this message this evening results in you take parts of Psalm 119 and make them your prayer. Will you pray them? Will you pray verse 33? Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Will you pray that verse 36, turn my heart towards your statutes? And as you pray them, what will you do with the second half of verse 33? Then I will keep them to the end. I always pray through God's word that I'm going to preach. And I found my tendency was to want to change that into, please God, make me keep them to the end. Please, God, help me keep them to the end. But it's not what it says, is it? I hope you're in no doubt we are supposed to pray the prayers of Psalm 119. But we're also supposed to make the commitments of Psalm 119. So will you pray verse 33 and verse 36 and verse 37 and make the commitments you find here? Like verse 33... God, if you do this for me, then I will keep your commands. Or the commitment of verse 17. Do good to your servant and I will live. I will obey your words. Or the commitment of verse 30. I'm just trying to show you there are commitments. It's not all prayers in this psalm. Verse 30. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. You see, that isn't a prayer. It is a commitment. Or even verse 44. Look at this one. Verse 44. I will always obey your law forever and ever. He doesn't say, please God, make me obey your law forever and ever. He's making a commitment. He's making a resolve. Now, you might be shocked at that one. I will always obey your law forever and ever. It is not claiming sinless perfection. It is not ignoring our weakness. But you wouldn't expect him surely to say, God, if you do all this for me, I will sometimes obey your law the coming week. Then after that, we'll see how it goes. Would you? So I hope that helps us see. It's not a claim at sinless perfection, but it is, God, I'm committing to do this. If you answer my prayers and give me this help. There are prayers here to pray, but don't turn it all into prayers. Some are commitments made to God. Can we really make such commitments? Or well, here's an encouragement to do so. Have you ever thought of this? Jesus, as a young man, read Psalm 119, and he did it. He, he prayed it. As a young man, he prayed, Father, teach me 
Father, turn my heart. Father, guard my eyes. I've come down into this world where there are so many temptations around. Guard my eyes. Jesus prayed those prayers and he made those commitments. Oh, yes, you say, of course he could. He was the son of God. No, no. I'm not disagreeing. He was the son of God. But he became a real man. And he had no shortcuts. And he had no way to fight sin that we don't have. That would be a denial of his humanity and of his obeying in our place. His father answered those Psalm 119 prayers. The spirit strengthened and enabled him. And Jesus, the man, resolved to obey. And he did it. And in Christ, we have the same father and the same spirit. And we can make the same resolve. We are to take responsibility. Well, I hope I've given you a taste for Psalm 119. Remember, it's not like Paul's letters where it's all in a link, a link of a chain made of links where you've got to take it all in order. It's like a treasure chest or put it another way. It's like a bag of sweets. So each morning you could take one of these sweets and suck on it all day. That would be good for you. I hope I've given you a taste for Psalm 119. I've also given you some weapons. Not the whole armoury, that's much bigger, but I've given you some weapons to use this week in the fight against sin and to keep going. We're going to sing a song which I think has some similarities to, some ways it's like a New Testament version of the Psalm 119 commitment. Let's sing.
down, we're going to pray. We're going to pray psalm. And in that prayer, I also want us to make this commitment of this psalm. Now, that isn't something to just go along with because the man on the front is leading it. So do think seriously about whether this is a commitment you really can make to God. Let's pray now. Teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees. As we read the Bible, we need you to give us understanding of your word, to to make us see your son in your word. Please do open our eyes to see him, the wonderful counsellor in your word. And not just as information in our heads, please turn our hearts. Turn our hearts, above all, towards your son. Make us delight in him. And actually be pleased, have that strong yes towards obeying his commands. And please, Father, turn our eyes away from worthless things. We live in a society where there are so many uh, things for us to see that will be no good for us. May we see them coming and turn our eyes away. And then, Father, if you do all that for us, we make this commitment that we will fight every sin we see coming. That we will not give in and indulge it, not make excuses, but that we will be disciples who are serious about obeying everything Jesus commands. Please enable us to fulfill that command, that commitment we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.